Would you turn to the epistle of Paul to the Thessalonians, number two? Second Thessalonians, chapter one. This is the final sermon in the series of sermons on the second coming of Christ. We've seen the sounds of His coming, the suddenness of His coming. Last Sunday, the signs of His coming. And this uh, passage this morning gives us kind of a summary of His coming. And it fits well to put this at the end to kind of summarize what we've talked about as we've looked at this marvelous doctrine of the New Testament church that is the um, eschatological hope, the second coming of Christ. Follow with me as I read, beginning verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all persecution and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give rest, relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day. Look at this. And to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. To this end also we pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power in order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The second coming has been referred to by some as the blessed hope of the world. It really isn't. It is not the blessed hope of the world. It is the blessed hope of the church. But to those, that world that does not know God, it is not a blessed hope. It presents to that world gloom and despair and judgment. So that really the second coming of Christ is viewed with mixed feelings. 
For some, it is a, it is a hope of unmingled joy. But to the vast majority of people, they face the second coming with great despair. For the church, it is the blessed hope that one day in our darkness, there will come the brightness of His appearing, and He shall come in great glory. A little boy was flying a kite one day, and it, had, it was high above the clouds. It looked like the string just went up to the clouds and stopped. A friendly postman paused to say, What are you doing there, big guy? He said, I'm flying a kite. He said, how do you know you're flying a kite? How do you know it's still there? You can't see it. He said, well, I can feel its tug. The longer I live and the longer I serve the Lord and the more I am made aware of suffering, the more I feel the tug of that blessed hope of Christ's return. Now, the book of Thessalonians, the two epistles, are the earliest statements in the New Testament concerning the second coming of Christ. And in this passage I have read, there is just a kind of a summary of His coming. First of all, His coming is a time of revelation of His Son. I want you to underline the word revealed in verse 7. He will be revealed. It means that the word means the uncovering of that which is covered, the unveiling of that which is hidden, so that he's saying that when the Lord returns, he will be unveiled, he will be uncovered. Now I thought that Jesus had already been revealed. Isn't it true that that's what Bethlehem was all about, that God revealed himself in human flesh? And did not John say in his epistles that he came in revelation so close that they could touch him with their hands, yes. But John, when he wrote that, had not seen Jesus as he one day would see him. He had not seen him as he would one day see him. For this John who wrote in his prologue, and we beheld his glory, is the same John who in the Revelation had that special vision. And he said, when I heard his voice, as of the sound of many rushing waters, I turned and saw him. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. He's more wonderful than we could ever imagine. He's more glorious than we could ever dream. He's more beautiful than the eyes could ever see. For even though we have seen him, in the eyes of these men who wrote this book. We've not yet seen Him as He really is. Mary Magdalene said, I saw the Lord, but not like she one day would see Him. And John said, We beheld His glory, but not like He would one day see Him. And Peter said, We were eyewitnesses of His majesty, the soaring eagle of eternity, but not like one day he would see him. Bob Eddins was blind for 51 years. He saw nothing. His life was just one long hallway of sounds and smells and darkness. And for five decades he felt his way around in the dark. And then one day he got his sight. A skilled surgeon performed surgery on his eyes 
And all of a sudden, for the first time, he could see. He was overwhelmed. He said, I didn't know yellow was so yellow. He said, I don't have words to describe it. I'm amazed at the color yellow. But red, he said, is my favorite color. And I know now what the moon looks like. He said, I like nothing better to go out in the daytime and see a jet airplane flying across the sky, trailing a vapor trail. He said, and the sunsets and the sunrises. He said, I go out and at night and I look at the stars and I see those flashing lights. You could never know how wonderful everything is. And he's right. A person who has had his vision for 50 years, a person who's had his vision for a lifetime, cannot know how wonderful it is when for the first time he has been given sight. We've not yet seen him. We've seen yellow, but we've not seen yellow. We've seen stars, but we've never seen stars. We have an idea of what he's like, but no idea of what he's like. He's more wonderful than the mind could ever imagine. Jonathan Goforth was saved when he was 10 years old. At the age of 45, he had this encounter with Christ and surrendered to his lordship. He experienced the infilling of the Holy Spirit, and he said... I feel like I have discovered a mine of wealth. You know the difference between a joyous Christian and Mr. Average Christian like most of us? One is beginning to know what Jesus really is like. And I believe that the route to victorious Christian living is the, is the discovery of what Jesus is beginning to discover what Jesus really is. Told you was right when he said, a Christian is weak or strong depending on how closely he's cultivated his knowledge of the holy. And when he comes, we'll see him like he really is, more glorious than we could ever imagine. It's like standing ankle deep in an ocean, not knowing how vast and how deep it really is. But secondly, when he comes, it will be a time not just of revelation of his son. It'll be a time of retribution for the sinner. That person who does not have a saving relationship with Christ. Now I've learned something about this judgment that he's described all through this epistle, these epistles to, to, the, to the Thessalonians. I learned one thing about this judgment, and that is that it is an earned judgment. Two times in this passage, he refers to this judgment as righteous judgment. And it means that what God does in judgment, in retribution against the sinner, has been earned by the sinner. He's, he deserves it. Now occasionally I have somebody say to me, well, I just don't believe that God will send somebody to hell. I just can't believe that. And they'll say, the God I know is the God of love. I just don't believe that this God will, will send somebody to hell. Listen, the scripture says that the judge of all the earth will do right. And God has just as much right to consign an unbeliever to eternal hell as he has a right to take a believer to heaven. He has just as much right. And in verse 6, there is a heavy word here. It's the word repay. 
and it means to give back a complete equivalent in return. And what he's saying is almost brutal but biblical. That the unbeliever, the sinner, will pay for everything he's done. Occasionally, you know, I'll slip and say, you know, all I want is... So he says in verse 6, I'm going to afflict them who have afflicted you. The word means to, to give pressure, to, to press upon. Literally, the word affliction there is, is the word from which we get our word follow. And it's the idea of somebody pursuing someone to harass them. You remember when Jesus was walking through that field one Sabbath and walking through that cornfield and and he was hungry and his disciples hadn't eaten so he just reached over and he plucked an ear of corn and, and he rubbed some of it in his hands and, and, and got some of the corn and they, he ate it and his disciples ate it and the Pharisees said, oh, whoop, hold it. This is the Sabbath. You just worked on the Sabbath. We got it down. Got it. We're eyewitnesses to it. You pluck that corn, that's harvesting. You rubbed it in your hand, that's thrashing. You just worked on the Sabbath. You ever, you ever wondered what those Pharisees, those religious leaders were doing in that cornfield on the Sabbath? Let me tell you what they were there, why they were there. They were following the Lord. They were pursuing Him. They had this pressure on Him all the time. I know women whose husbands ridiculed them and put pressure on them because they love the Lord. And some of these young people who sit out in front of me every Sunday know the pressure of their peers as they put pressure on them when they try to stand for God. Listen, you'd better be careful what you say about God's people. You better be careful what you say about the church. Not only did they ridicule God's people, but they earned this judgment by refusing to know God. And so he says in verse 8 that they know not God. That's not really the best translation. It, it's they refuse to know Him. And the fact that they didn't know God wasn't because they didn't have information about Him. It wasn't because they were ignorant of Him. It was because they refused the revelation they had. And it's reminiscent of Romans 1. And Paul says there, you've had sufficient revelation. You, you may never have heard somebody preach a message, but... You've had sufficient revelation in the created world around you and in your conscience. And the reason why you don't know God is because you've refused to know Him. It's a dangerous thing to come to church. You've had sufficient revelation, many of you. You've lived to an adult lifetime and you've had sermon after sermon preached to you. I mean, you can turn on the television and hear it. You can turn on the radio, you got tapes, you can come to service. I mean, time after time, you grew up listening to sermons. You have no excuse. The reason why you don't know God is because you shut your heart to Him and refuse to know Him. You earned your judgment. And he said the reason why they've earned their judgment is not just because they've ridiculed God's people and refused to know God, but because they've rebelled against the gospel. Are you obedient to the gospel? You see, the gospel is not something that somebody preaches so you'll have something to do on Sunday. 
The gospel is not something that you can put in your pocket and, and put in your handbag and carry around with you if you ever need it at a convenient season to respond to it. Listen, the command of the gospel this day is that you repent of your sin and enthrone Jesus Christ as Lord or are you obedient to the gospel. There is a time we know not when a point we know not where that marks the destinies of men for glory or despair. There is a line by us unseen that crosses every path, the boundary between God's patience and His wrath. I don't know where that line is, neither do you. But I know this, that God's grace is not infinite. Now that's good good language to sing that, you know, in, in hymns, marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. God's grace is marvelous and it's matchless, but it's not infinite. There is a line somewhere that crosses every path that divides God's patience from His wrath. And that line is marked with one's death or with the shout of His coming. It is a time of retribution for the sinner. Finally, the day of the Lord is a day of redemption for the saint. And so Paul says in Philippians, He that hath begun a good work in you will perfect it unto the day of Christ. And Peter refers to that receiving the end of one's salvation. You see, there are two ends to salvation. There is the front end and there is the back end. When I was a senior in high school, I received salvation, the front end of it. And the Lord came into my life, but it wasn't the end, it was just the front end. And I'm absolutely convinced that He began a work there that He will perfect, and He will continue to perfect until the day of redemption. Now that day, the end of my salvation doesn't even occur when I die because the good that I've done will go on bearing its fruit and dividend, and the end of one's salvation occurs at the end of the age when Christ returns. And so he's saying that he begins a good work at salvation and he completes that with his return. It's the day of redemption for the saint of God. Now three things about that. It means that when He comes, it will be a time of vindication. That's what He says in verse 4. He will vindicate us. Now I'm going to be honest with you. There's may, there may not be a lot of vindication of, of Christianity and Christian service in this life. You'd think they would. I mean, after all, you'd think that God would give us special consideration who serve Him. I've got folks around me that couldn't care less about God, have no time for Him, no place for Him in their lives, they go their way. You'd think that God would give me some special consideration, wouldn't you? I mean, I'm trying to serve Him. But the fact is, there will probably be very little vindication in this life. But when He returns, hear me now, He will vindicate everything you've done for Him. Every tear you shed, every ounce of energy you've expended, 
And he, in, as a matter of fact, he said, I will vindicate you ten times what you put into that. There will be vindication. It'll be a time of relaxation. So he says in verse 7, he will give relief. It means to loosen the string. And it refers to a bowstring that's taut and strained. And what he's saying is this, you live in an age, you live in a time of tension and pressure. And you live under stress all of the time. When I return, can you imagine what these Thessalonians lived under, the pressure they lived under, the stress of it, like a bowstring taut. He said, when I return, I'm going to release the pressure. I'm going to give rest. I'm going to give rest. Now, it doesn't mean idleness. It means the release of tension. There is vindication. There is relaxation. There is, what's this? Glorification. And so he says in verse 10, that we will be glorified. He will be glorified in us. Glorified in us. Now how is He going to be glorified in us? He'll be glorified in us because we will be changed to be just like Him. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon those who love Him. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And when He comes in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed to be just like Him. And the artist is known by His work. And this marvelous scripture that I emphasize, I love that scripture it says, and they will marvel at Him when they see us in our glorified state. They'll marvel at Him when they see us because we'll be changed to be just like Him, having seen Him as He is. Now I've learned what to say to a father who has a new baby. After 30 years in the, in the, in the pastoral ministry, as Grady Nutt calls it, I have learned what to say when a father shows me for the first time his new baby. And I, you know, I'm standing there looking with him at the window, and it's the ugliest thing you've ever seen. The only kids, I've, only babies, only babies I've ever seen are beautiful. We're my own. Rest of them, ugliest things I've ever seen. Red and red and screaming and 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 ugly, wrinkled, just ugly. Now, now, what do you say when the father's standing there and he kind of nudges you and says, "What do you think?" I mean, do you tell the truth and say that absolutely is the ugliest thing I've ever looked at? <laughs> Can you say that? Or do you lie and say, oh, what a precious, beautiful baby? What do you say? Well, I've learned what to say. When he nudges me and says, what do you think? I say, looks just like you. <laughs> Got it figured out. Looks just like you. Now, that, that's not a compliment, really. It's not... But, but, it, but it makes him feel so proud, so good. You know, really, he said, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Looks just like you. And one day God peered out over the battlements of heaven. He just put his son down here in the world. His name was Adam. And he peered out over the battlements of heaven. He looked down and he said, that's my boy. Looks just like me. The extension of my personality 
the expression of my nature. That's just, he, that's my boy, it looks just like me. And one day Adam sinned and marred that image. And so he came the second time and he put another boy down. His name, it, it was the second Adam. They named him Jesus. And two times loud enough for the whole world to hear, he said, that's my boy. Looks just like me. And when our Lord returns and we've been fashioned to be just like Jesus, they're going to step back and all the heavenly hosts are going to stand back and they're going to say, glory. He looks just like Jesus. And we will. And will. He looks just like my son. And we will. For we will be changed to be just like him having seen him as he really is. Let us then be true and faithful, trusting, serving every day for just one glimpse of him in glory with all the toil of life we pay. Onward to the prize before us Soon His beauty we'll behold. Soon the pearly gates will open and we will tread the streets of gold and we'll be just like Him. When He comes, we'll see Him as He is. When He comes, He'll be dealing out retribution upon the sinner. When he comes, he'll bring, he'll bring redemption for the saint. Would you pray with me, please? Father, let us sense this morning the importance of this moment of invitation. Let us understand that we stand in eschatological moments, moments that mark the end for good or for bad, for glory or despair. And those of us who can face eternity with pre prepared hearts do so with joy hope but there are those some of us watching by television listening in this room who face eternity with despair hopelessness and doom and I pray that today will be the day of salvation for every lost child man or woman who hears this word. Now draw to, together, Father, our hearts in preparation for this invitation. And may thy will be done perfectly when we've said the last amen to leave. For I ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Here, look here, please. This invitation this morning is for those of you who are 
who do not know, have a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, who have never publicly placed your faith in Jesus and Jesus alone, abandoning all other faiths and trusts to Him, to place yourself upon Him for all of life ahead. I want you to come this morning. Don't leave this place until you've done that. Please, I beg you by the mercies of God, don't walk away unprepared. Come today and receive Christ as your Savior. I didn't understand it all when I came to the Lord. There is this unfolding of Him. This invitation is for you to come and join our church. Maybe you've visited enough to know that God would bless you here, need you here, we need you here. Or to rededicate your life to Christ. You've been unfaithful to Him. You've not kept your promise. Would you come this morning while we stand to sing? We invite you to come.